Uh, so if you've been with us the last couple weeks, uh, you know what we've been talking about. Uh, we, oh yeah, if you're a uh, kindergarten to fifth, fifth grader, uh, go on with the Abernathys. They're ready for you. Uh, I got that in the bulletin, so I didn't have to remember, but I still feel like I have to say it. All right. Um, if you know this last couple of weeks, uh, you know we've been going through our mission statement. And our mission statement uh, isn't anything uh, unusual for a Christian church. Uh, our mission statement starts that we want to apply, uh, the, bring the person, and wor- the, work, the person and work of Jesus Christ to bear in every area of our lives and our community. So two weeks ago, we talked about our lives, that we don't move on to some different message than the gospel once we become Christians. We have this ongoing, continued need for grace as Christians. It doesn't become like, okay, you need grace, you get saved, and then nothing happens in your life, and then you change altogether when you get to heaven. It's not like, okay, it's grace before you become a Christian, you become a Christian, and then after that it's this self-help thing or this thing where you pay God back for your salvation. We said, no, 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 that we need the gospel continually as Christians, in the way that it's applied to our lives is through the historic practices called the means of grace. All right, that was two weeks ago. Last week we talked about applying the personal work of Jesus Christ to that of our community. When we talk about that, usually uh, in American churches, they become very visionaholic. Things become radical and extreme. But we talked about the mundane, normal, ordinary, everyday practices of doing our jobs, committing to place, and doing family in such a way that it blesses our city. That we think that when these things are done, these ordinary tasks over the long haul, that an extraordinary impact can happen. And so today we're talking about generosity. We're talking about money. This is a unique time in life for our church. Uh, We're at the seven-year mark. And by God's grace, we've made it this far. We've endured a lot as a church plant. This is our fourth worship location. That's the first part. Second one, I think, is that you've had a very green pastor. Many of you are very green to this local church thing. This is really the first time for many of you that you've been a vital member of a local church. We've dealt with the global pandemic. We dealt with the challenges of being the first church plant out of Tates Creek Presbyterian Church, of planning in a non-suburban neighborhood, of planning at a time where the culture is as skeptical as ever of the institution of the church. It's humbling to reflect back and see God's grace on us, isn't it? But as we look ahead, we want to build on the things that we already do have established, that we had this network of healthy relationships with one another over these last seven years. We have this clear mission that God has given us to apply the personal work of Jesus Christ to our lives and our community so that the neighborhoods in and around downtown can be transformed by the gospel. Yet we need to put down roots. We need to become increasingly established so that this church outlasts me and you. So in order to do that, we got to talk about money. So I need to just talk bare bones with you here. we got to talk about our current position and we're going to talk about next year. So our current position is this. You see it in your bulletin, but our fiscal year ends on September 30th. We have a little over a month left, and we are at $359,000 in giving. Our budget is three eighty, dollars so it looks like that we're going to exceed budget this year. And that's great news. 
Because any excess that we have over our expenditures go to our three outwardly faced funds. One are the arts projects that equip artists with the gospel so they might engage our community. The second is to plant churches to reach the lost. And the third is to give to the poor by giving to our nonprofits. So we're asking you between now and September 30th to pray about making an extra gift in order to give as much as we can to these three outwardly faced funds. The second part we need to talk about is after that, of after September 30th, starting the next budget year. And we want our budget to reflect our increased commitment to establishing our church. We want to establish our church by investing in our children, by investing in our fellowship with one another, and by investing in this building. So next year, our budget will increase 13%. That's by far the biggest percentage we've ever had. We think this is what God's calling us to. And we're going to have an investment for growth fund. And that investment for growth fund are lots of new items that have never been in our budget before. It's all about establishing our church for growth in the future. And that fund will happen from October through December as a one-time ask of $68,000. That's a lot of pieces, isn't it? Each of these pieces, the end of the fiscal year ask for community causes, the increased budget, the investment to growth fund, they all are the the fruit of feedback from you, of lots of discussion amongst ourselves as leaders and of prayer. But we can see where it might be overwhelming because in many respects there are three separate asks, aren't they? We're asking you to consider an extra gift between now and the end of next month. We're asking you to consider an extra gift between October and December. And we're asking you to consider increasing your regular giving. So, what strategy strategy should we employ so this happens? Well, i got a few tools in my toolbox here. One is I could pull out the tool of obligation. And I could say, you call this church your home, so you should understand you're required to give to it. I could pull out the tool of sentimentality. Just march our kids in front of you. I could pull out the tool of guilt and show you all these statistics about how poor our neighborhood is and how materialistic we are as Americans. Yet when I find the Apostle Paul doing some fundraising himself, I don't find him using the language of obligation, sentimentality, or guilt to motivate Christians to give. He uses something very different. He uses grace. And we're going to read a part of the longest passage on giving in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So uh, let's read 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 8, and then we'll read 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. All right, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. I say this not as a command... But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. 
For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your, your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The word of the Lord. All right, I want us to look first at the occasion for generosity. Secondly, the nature of generosity. And finally, the motivation. The occasion first. The occasion is that this is the church at Corinth. And this is likely the church in the New Testament that is most like the church in America in the 21st century. It's very affluent. It's highly educated. It's overly sexualized, and it's mostly Gentile or non-Jew. And so what Paul does here is that he presents the Corinthian church with a giving opportunity to give to the church in Jerusalem who is undergoing a severe famine. And so what Paul does is that he sends this letter, 2 Corinthians, with Titus and other ministry associates in hopes that they would give their money to these leaders who would then give that money to Jerusalem. But this was a tough ask. It was tough, at least in part, because the Corinthians were not the ideal picture of gospel health. Just read 1 Corinthians. Yet Paul doesn't want Titus and these other leaders to go to the Corinthian church to get them to some point of maturity and then ask them for money. He asks them in the midst of, of their immaturity. Tough ask. But then there's the ethnic piece. The Jewish Christians had a pretty long rap sheet when it came to how they treated their fellow Gentile brothers and sisters. The Jewish Christians on the whole thought they were superior to the Gentiles because they knew the ins and the outs of the Old Testament and the Gentiles didn't have a clue about the Old Testament. So it's not crazy to think that the Corinthians might not be so thrilled about helping fund these religious snobs. Lastly, this isn't 
that exciting of an ask because they're giving to Jews and not to themselves. They're not giving to their local congregation to help fund the Corinthian church. That's ministry is to and for them. They're giving to Jews that they'll never meet. They're not giving to an exciting missionary vision. They're not giving to a tangible building campaign. They're giving to poor, snobbish strangers as immature believers. This is the context of Paul's ask. That is the occasion for the, this gospel generosity. But then from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we can begin to piece together what, what are the characteristics or what is the nature of gospel generosity. And the first thing that we see over and over and over again in these two chapters, and I just picked out four. I could have picked out a lot more. I actually had 11. I got it down to four. There are 11 places where we see in these two chapters that Paul wants this gospel generosity to be free, to be willing, to be genuine, to be authentic. You see it in verse 8 of chapter 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. He's telling them that they've started not only to do this work, because they had given in the past, now he's trying to get, to get them to finish off their gift. Start not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Chapter 8, verse 12, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable. Chapter 9, verse 7, each one must give not reluctantly or under compulsion. So you put all these together and you see that Paul is hitting the same chord over and over and over, don't you? He's hitting this chord of he wants them to give freely. He's so intent on wanting them to give this way that it's repeated in this letter. In fact, the reason that Paul doesn't deliver this letter himself and he gives it to Titus and these other leaders is because he's afraid that the Corinthian church will give only because he's the one who shows up in person. In other words, the senior pastor takes a back seat and sends his assistant pastors to do all the fundraising. I can tell you that never happens. But that's why Paul does it, is he wants them to give just because they want to. I used to uh, raise money for a living. I used to do exactly what Wayne just did here. I was on your life staff, and when you raise money for a living, it's a very vulnerable position to be in. Um, it's also really difficult because you get rejected a lot. You get to learn to deal with that, and it's a really good thing. But one time I met with an older gentleman uh, who had a lot of money, I didn't know him very well, so I was super nervous. I stuttered through my ass, which I did pretty much every time anyways. And I got done, and he told me something I'll never forget. He said, I have more fun giving than I do spending. He wrote me a check, and I walked out the door with my mouth on the floor. See, he got it. He got that giving is from the heart. He got that you give because you want to. The second thing we see about the nature of generosity 
is that Paul doesn't give a standard or an amount. It's totally absent from these two chapters. But if you've been around the church for a long time, you've probably heard the word tithe, right? Most of you have. If you've not been in church very much, you've probably never heard the word. But it's a word that comes from the Old Testament. The tithe in the Old Testament was the contribution that God commanded from his people to provide for the priests and for the worship of the temple. And most of the time, it's thought to be 10% of what you earn, the first 10%. But when you get to the New Testament, you don't see Jesus endorse the tithe as something that carries forward into the New Covenant. Nor do you see Jesus abolish the tithe as something just of the past. So there's this kind of controversy about the tithe's ongoing relevance for today. But what you can deduce from this passage, the longest passage in the New Testament about giving, is that there's no percentage. There's no amount given by Paul. But what he does say in verse 5 of chapter 8 is that the Macedonians, who he holds up as an example of this gospel generosity, is that they gave themselves first to God and then to Paul and the other leaders. And we're to do the same. See, if we give ourselves to God and to our leaders in order to figure out what we should give, we begin to ask not, how much do I have to give? You begin to ask, have I given myself to God? And if you ask, how much do I have to give? You're proving that you don't get it. See, how much you give isn't the point. Meeting the budget isn't the point. Here's why. When you give yourself first to God, he's going to get up in your business about a lot more than just your giving. He's going to begin to show you how your spending patterns reflect what matters to you. He's going to begin to show you why you chose your career and if you did it mostly for money. He's going to ask you why you even want to retire. He's going to ask you why not work more so that you can give more. See, there's a million things that could happen when you give yourself to God. But we miss out on what God could do with us when we settle for a percentage or an amount. So, first two characteristics. Give from the heart. Second thing is, there's not a standard. And the third thing is, you make a vow. This will sound a little different from the first two. But I'm just getting it from verse 7 of chapter, from chapter 9. Paul says each one must give what he has decided in his heart, not compulsively. This is pretty straightforward. See, it's possible to never make a decision in your heart of what you're going to give. You're just radically committed to give when you feel like it. But Paul right here in verse 7 says, give what you've decided in your heart. Don't give compulsively. I think what Paul is saying is he's saying make a commitment before the Lord of what you want to give. Stick to it for a season. Put it back under evaluation to God when you give yourself to God. And you're always willing for God to call you to give outside of what you've planned. Just a couple of examples. I have a friend uh, who's got a pretty uh, set salary, just kind of a cost of living raise every year kind of guy. And he's made a commitment that he's going to raise the percentage that he's going to give by half a percent every year as long as he's working. 
See, he's decided in his heart what he's going to give. I have another friend who's capped her lifestyle. And she gives away everything on top of that. See, the principle here is to make a decision in your heart about what to give and know that it's not opposed to giving freely or willingly. So there you have it. Gospel generosity is marked by giving willingly. It's marked by not focusing on a standard or percentage. And it's marked by making a vow in your heart about what you're going to give. That's a tall task. That's a tall task for us as Americans. See, some of that is because the excess around us makes it hard to determine our wants from our needs. It's also hard because many of us are strapped. We're strapped as ever for money as we deal with an income that's not kept pace with inflation. It's hard because we're trying as families to deal with lost wages or child care costs that are associated with having babies. It's hard because some of us are managers or owners and we've chosen to keep our people employed and we take the hit personally. I don't know why this is hard. But what is going to help us be these kind of givers? What should our motivation be? Look at verse 9 of chapter 8. Verse 9 of chapter 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, it's not obligation. It's not sentimentality. It's not guilt. It's grace. It's grace. Paul puts the gospel in verse 9 in economic terms here, so Jesus might show up for us in 3D for us. So let's walk through real carefully verse 9 so that we might savor Jesus. It starts off by saying that Jesus was rich. See, this was his status in eternity from times past. That he, with the two member, other two members of the Trinity, they were so rich in resources that they could create the world out of nothing. Talk about rich. That Jesus was rich in praise as the tens of thousands of angels sang of his worth and majesty all day, every day. Jesus demonstrated the richness of his wisdom as he dealt wisely with a sin-sick world. He's rich. But the unimaginable thing is that he decided to put all of those riches and put them into a frail human baby. And he was born into physical poverty with threats on his life from his earliest of days. He labored in obscurity as a carpenter. He was misunderstood and mocked and spurned by his closest friends. He was murdered violently. He absorbed the father's wrath when all he had ever known was the father's delight. See, that's a descent into becoming poor. Though he was rich, became poor. And why did he do it? He did it for your sake. He did it so that you might become rich. And he's not speaking rich in monetary sense, by the way. He's saying that you become rich in righteousness. That's what the text says. All that Jesus had merited through his sinless life is now credited to your account. 
and all the debt in which you had accrued is now put on him. And he did it in love. He did this because he wanted a people for his own who would put their trust in him, who would give of their money recklessly, and who would be filled with an unspeakable joy. And so when you see that Jesus loved you like this, you'll be able to be generous. But friends, there's more. There's a whole smorgasbord of benefits that we enjoy as a result of our gospel-motivated giving. Look at verses 13 to 15 in chapter 8. Paul talks about how the Corinthians at this point in the game, they're supplying for the church in Jerusalem. But he says that there's going to come a day when the church in Corinth is going to need the church of Jerusalem. And he pretty much is saying, because you have been giving to one another, it's going to create a relational bond. It's going to create intimacy. And so there's this benefit of intimacy that comes, this horizontal benefit of relationship that comes when we give. But there's also a personal benefit. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. Paul says that you will be enriched in every way. In other words, you incur a wealth of spiritual resources that brings you joy when you give. See, here's the way we usually think about giving. We have joy, which makes us want to give, and then we get God's grace. Joy, give, grace. But here's what Paul's saying. He's saying you got it backwards. Grace always comes first. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. The preamble of the Ten Commandments, God reminds the Israelites, here's why you are to obey these ten things. Because I've delivered you from Egypt. I did this even though you rebelled against me. So grace always comes first. And when we give as a response to that grace, then we have joy. So Paul flips it for us. He's trying to incentivize you, to show you the benefit that comes to you personally. So why should you give? Do it selfishly. Do it because you want to be happy. That's what he's saying. So yes, there's this horizontal benefit, this relational benefit, there's a personal benefit, and then there's a vertical. There's a theological benefit. The passage closes in verses 12 to 15 of chapter 9 with Paul really going on into one big doxology. He's saying that the Corinthians, your giving is going to make the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Christians sing. In fact, he's saying your giving is going to make me sing. So in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift shows that there's this vertical, this theological benefit of our giving. So why should you give, church? Because God has given to you so richly in Jesus. What happens if you give? It builds connection with others. You are overcome with joy, and God is praised. So, may Jesus reveal himself to us to make us generous. Let's pray. Father, we confess that this is new ground for many of us. Lord, that we need help in thinking about it. So pray you would come and you would help shower your grace through your spirit on us. In Christ's name, amen.